Hello and welcome to the Future of Football, a brand new show brought to you by The Athletic. Last week we assessed the status of the World Cup, but today we're going to focus our attention on domestic matters, in particular the EFL. Is the oldest and most historic professional football league in the world under serious existential threat? Many EFL clubs have been living hand-to-mouth for a long time and the looming economic crisis will only worsen their plight. So what needs to be done to give these proud institutions a chance of survival and if the EFL and its clubs do weather this storm how do we create a structure that is sustainable and leads to a prosperous future this is the future of football brought to you by The Athletic Uh, so with us uh, for this podcast, Matt Slater, Phil Hay, Simon Hughes, all journalists with The Athletics, all of them have contributed to an article that you can read now on the website, Rival Plans, Wage Fears and Player Poaching, EFL Clubs Fight for Their Futures, an article really about the situation we find ourselves in at the moment with COVID-19. Uh, before we get on to discussing that immediate situation, I'm just interested in what the Football League means to you, really, both as as journalists and as football fans. Matt, we can start with you. It's the football that I pay to watch. For for listeners that don't know the geography of the, of the country, I support a very mediocre team called Southend United from the southeast of England. Uh, we've had lots of lows, a few highs. Obviously, the highs massively outweigh the lows. But I now live in the northwest. I live I live in a place called Macclesfield. So Southern United are a team that I learn a lot about the country. It means it means tins you know cans on the on the trains. It means you know ludicrous celebrations with my mates. It means arguments about you know whether we're a big club, whether we're bigger than Colchester, who our biggest rival is, who do we hate more. It means favourite players, means good players I've seen pass through, ones that got away. It's the football that I talk and get excited about. And then now where I live, it's it's it'll help me it helped me bed in. It helped me learn about Macclesfield and the Northwest. It's the football that I take my kids to. It's how I got my kids into football because it's cheap and it's down the road. You know, that it's 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 the football I love. I, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, Simon. Just that last one of, you know, if, if you travel around the country and live in different areas and you can't watch your boyhood team and if your boyhood team is a, is a top flight team, maybe. So, so when you are round, going around the country to be part of a community and to see some football, you quite often go to a local team and that's where these clubs and not just football league clubs but non-league clubs as well are important I went to university in Hull I went to watch Hull City when I was there you know when I lived in West London I'd go and see Brentford my wife is at Exeter University so if I visited her I'd try and go and watch Exeter City that that's the importance of these clubs makes you feel part of a community yeah well I I studied in Sheffield and um, I tested out all the, the, the sort of lower league clubs in that region when I studied there. Uh, I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan, but I, I couldn't bring myself to support Sheffield United just because the fans started singing United United <laughs> straight away, and I thought I, I can't I can't be dealing with this. But I did sort of grow a bit of a, a sympathy, I guess, for Sheffield United for, for, from afar in some ways. So yeah, I mean, I, my relationship with the sort of lower leagues a bit different to Matt. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of any particular club, but. You know, my my journalistic career started in a in a traditional way, sort of covering local my local non-league team, which is called Marine, and they're in the, the Northern Premier League. And 
around that time that they were competing against Accrington Stanley, who are now in League One, you know, not too far away from Liverpool only an hour's drive. And I sort of saw their ascent through the leagues and just, you know, wondered how they were doing it. And a lot of it was down to the the the, the fantastic management team that they have, who are both two both two guys who are both from Merseyside who have known each other for a very long time. You know, they have said to me in the past, you know, they're very fortunate to be able to um to work as a management team with your best mate, you know, as this is Jimmy Bell and and, and John Coleman, it's a unique relationship. And I sort of got to know them through work over a number of years. And I've written various articles about Akronson, you know, spent, initially spending a day with, with John from pretty much the moment he woke up to the moment he, I left him to, to, to go back through his house door later that night when I went to Akronson and he played, um, I, think they, I think it was he played Coventry that, that day. And then since then, with, with the Athletic, I've been to Bristol Rovers for a, a weekend away with them and, it's really made me realise just how sort of close the relationships are and, and how they spread from that football club, from the management team, all the way across the terraces. I think, I suppose, Accrington is a slightly different football club to a lot of football league clubs and their story is is probably not appreciated enough. You know, I think it's one of the, the great stories of British football. I think the reason why people don't talk about it so often is because it's it's a story of gradual progression rather than a meteoric rise and in many ways that that should make the story better but unfortunately people don't seem to talk about it too much even though they're a club that's now competing in the same league for two seasons with Sunderland and going to the stadium of light and and, 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 and at one stage beating them in the game and I think they drew two all that game you know it's just incredible it's it's, it's insane but I think that's the great thing about sort of the uh, football league that there are still countless a lot of stories like this there, 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 there are sorts of stories of non-league football clubs who are able to get into the Football League and have an impact. Burton, Albion being one, they got all the way to the Championship. Yeovil being another. So I, I just love that element of it. I realise that there's an element of finance that we, uh, relating to success, but I think that's why Accrington to me is, is 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 what football should be about in that they have had some financial investment, but their, their rise has been primarily because of the relationships that exist there. And Phil? Well, I'm not an Englishman, obviously, but I can relate to the year, Phil, because I follow Hearts up north, and um, needless to say, Hearts are not an elite elite club. Um, the SPL is not an elite league. You don't see elite football at that level, and Hearts are not um, predominantly particularly successful. I was 17 when I first saw them win a trophy. Uh, I've seen them win three in total over the course of, of my lifetime. Uh, but I've written about the EFL for, for almost 20 years now and and the thing that always struck me about it and particularly when I started going home and away with Leeds was not only the number of clubs and the number of really sizable clubs around the country but also the followings that, that they're able to pull in the, the crowds that they they generate um, you you were never ever talking about one man and a dog even when Leeds were down in League One even when they were going around what you would consider to be smaller clubs very healthy attendances very healthy crowds crowds that should mean that clubs at that level are, are able to to sustain themselves and I always feel with the EFL that you, you, you do have to differentiate between the quality of the football which can be very mixed and, and at times can be can be fairly poor and the quality of the competition and I think more often than not in the time that, that I've been writing about the EFL that the level of competition in those three divisions um, has outweighed the level of competition in the Premier League and I know in the Premier League you have the odd season where it's Liverpool and, and Manchester City neck and neck but more often than not it's not the wide open field that you tend to get in for example the, the Championship promotion race and, and it's interesting because I hear a discussion that goes around at, at Leeds quite regularly which is 
when when they get promoted to the Premier League, which it will inevitably happen at some point and is what they've been chasing for the best part of 15 years now, when it happens, will it be all that it's cracked up to be? Will they like the, the glitz and the glamour or will they find that actually it's a very sanitised division in which the gulf to the top six and, and the likes of City and, and Liverpool is so massive that actually you're trying to, to clear more open water than you were by trying to jump out of the Championship into the, the Premier League in the first place. And the one thing Leeds are not and have never been is a superficial club it's it's rough and ready at Ellen Road they like it that way and there is that kind of suspicion that, that when they leave the EFL there might actually be things that they miss about it despite the fact that they want to be gone despite the fact that they want to be at, at a higher level with, with more exposure and I think it's got an awful lot going for it it's, it, it stands out to me as, as one of the best um, the best collections of competitions in, in European football and, and when I look at it I, I do think that the pyramid should be able to sustain 92 clubs from the top of the Premier League to the bottom of, of League 2 and with more um, professional clubs below it in the National League as well there's a, there's a massively massively positive heritage of, of football in England and, and the EFL is, is a significant part of that um, If we go if we look at the current situation now and I mentioned you all contributed to the to the article on the athletic rival plans wage fears player poaching EFL clubs fight for their futures it starts with Andy Holt the Accrington Stanley owner and um, he's incredibly open in in football he explains how he budgets for his football club regularly on social media um so in in talking to him Simon and dealing with him does he paint a bleak picture for EFL clubs in this current coronavirus situation? Well, I think Andy, for a long time, has, has been quite outspoken about the challenges of running a football club. You know, he, he's used social media as a, as a tool to try and engage, certainly with his own fans, and, and raise awareness about, you know, the great challenge of, of, of running a football club at that level. And I think you used the term hand-to-mouth earlier on, and that is certainly the way it's been at Accrington. You know, I think the danger is is that, that you know, every club isn't like Accrington, but there are similarities. You know, Accrington, as I said, is a, is a unique football club, which, um, which is operating on a different financial level to a lot of clubs in that league. You know, it's, it's very much overachieving, really. It, by rights, when you look at the level of finances involved at Accrington, it, it, it'd probably you know have its natural position now. I'd say somewhere in the lower half of the of the national league. You know, the get bearing in mind the amount of money that's involved in the national league now, which you just sort of touched on it there. I mean, it, it's it's an extension of the football league in a lot of cases in terms of the finance. There's a lot of yeah, there's there's more money involved in the national league than there is in League Two now. So Atkinson are punching well above the weight, as as I've already said. But you know the the reality is, as Andy Andy Holt said repeatedly, that like a lot of football clubs, you know, even higher up, the, if they've got no income streams and the the primary source of revenue is the gate receipts, and they're not those players aren't coming through the doors. You know, sorry, those uh, spectators aren't coming through the doors, and there's no money to play players. So all the Atkinson staff, or most of the Atkinson. Atkinson staff have been placed on furlough over the last uh, month or so, uh, which obviously gives them some security. But if they were to return to action and, and not be able to play in front of spectators and have no um, no money coming through that way, then that would increase problems just further down the line. So, 
Uh, I know that I know. Obviously, John Coleman's got concerns about you know how he manages the, the contract situation, which every every football club does. That Atkinson have got, I think, thirteen players up for um, up for contract renewal at the end of June, and John's concerned about sort of the integrity of of the competition. If, if there's players who know that they're going to be leaving Atkinson and are asked to stay for a couple more weeks, he's faced this problem before in a, in a more yeah, I guess a more uh, serene time when. Atkinson were losing players ahead of the end of the season, knowing that those players were going to leave and competing for the playoffs. And he said, you know, then that, that the players would lose focus. So asking them to, to to sort of play for him and perform for him when some of those players are actually going to be leaving and possibly facing a lot of financial uncertainty, he feels is unfair. So, yeah, I mean, Atkinson, I think, reflects, I would say, the low very much the low ends where, where, where clubs are, are living a real financial world. Of course, within League One, there are other clubs which have similar concerns, but for very different reasons. And you know, Sunderland's will be one of them. You know, that the scale of their problems is on a, on a completely different level to Atkinson, but there are similarities with the concerns. And, and I suppose this is the I suppose this is a problem with lumping all seventy one clubs together a little bit, Matt, isn't it? In this current situation, because there are clubs, will be clubs who have been run well as businesses who are suffering now through no fault of their own, in in the same way that a restaurant might be, or a, a pub might be, or a I don't know a, a golf club might be, at the moment. But maybe what this current situation, this shutdown, has also done is shine a very glaring spotlight on a lot of clubs who have not been run the right way. I'd agree with all of that. This is hard for everybody. This is hard for every business in the entertainment, leisure, travel sector. Uh, it's 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 hard for almost every sector. No, no one's no one's apart from I don't know Amazon, Tesco's. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the winners now would, are a very very small number. Everyone is hurting. Uh, this is you know unique and unprecedented. If we said umpteen times before on, on recent podcasts. And and those things are true. I mean, good businessmen like Andy Holt, who runs a really, really successful uh, little company that makes, you know, storage and boxes, makes his stuff in the Northwest, came into football like a lot of these guys do, almost by accident, kind of a favour, um, and then has tried to apply business, sound business practices to running a football club. And he has done it a lot better than most in that he has you know stayed true to some pretty sound principles and is running that that club you know beautifully really considering you know that it's squeezed between you know Bolton and Blackburn Manchester's not that far off it's just remarkable I mean as as Simon says they're a, they're a sort of a fifth fourth tier type club they're certainly their budget's fourth tier you know absolute kudos to him but the whole thing about the EFL the whole whenever I look at the EFL, it is remarkable that we kind of look at it as this sort of homogenous group. You have Leeds United at one end, you have Nottingham Forest there, you have Derby Counties, you have Sheffield Wednesdays, and at the other end, you've got Morecambe, you've got Mac Town, you've got Accrington, and you've got all life between. You have some fabulously wealthy people there. Like, you know, Lakshmi Mittal is a, is a minority shareholder at QPR. He's one of the richest people in Europe. You've got uh, Tony, well, that club's owned by Tony Fernandez, who runs airlines in Malaysia. Um, you've got Marcus uh, Evans at Ipswich. I can't remember how much he's worth now, but he's worth an awful lot. There are a lot of wealthy people. Michael Eisner at Pompey. I mean, he's one of the richest men in, in, in the States. He, you know, the Disney Corporation. You know, so 
we, we pretend as though they're this group and they all they're all fa- look they are they are facing this one big acute problem which is cash flow and they all have fixed costs the players wages that's a problem every one of them as a business person will recognize that as a problem they have ways out of it they have you know can i cope can i cope for a little while can does it is it going to hit me in a month's time is it going to hit me in six months time do i want to finish this season do i want to hibernate they've all it is remarkable the efl i mean i you know it's it's running the, the thing is often talked about like you know being in charge of a stag do you know it's it's herding cats it's those sort of metaphors and i think this problem has definitely shone a light on a lot of poorly run clubs and well-run clubs are struggling too but it's the complexity it's the range of issues agendas clubs size of business type of business in the EFL under that that under that umbrella that strikes me every day as just an enormously complicated problem and therefore Phil given all those different strands that Matt talks about in putting this article together and in the people that you spoke to is it impossible to to look at all 71 clubs working for the greater good because what is the because is there a greater good I suppose is the other question or is it every man and woman for themselves there's a greater good until you get into discussions about money and and self-interest and (laughs) and then it becomes very apparent that that it is ultimately every every man for for himself and it it is in a lot of ways the EFL too diverse and you can take this back to the 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 big argument and debate that was had about um the tv rights deal in the EFL a couple of years ago and and the there was huge dissatisfaction at the top level amongst the biggest clubs in the championship about that because they felt that in, in terms of what they brought to Sky in particular um, in, in audiences and broadcast figures, that their cut of the deal was extremely poor and, and far below what they deserved. But then at the other end of the, the scale and you know the Morecambe's and Macclesfield towns that, that Matt was talking about, they could see the value of a collective deal because it gave them money that if they were to try and sell individual rights or to, to, to go it alone or to go it alone as, as say League One or League Two, it gave them money that they would simply not be able to to match. Um, and and this is this is the problem. I think at, at the level of a club like Accrington and others, the worry at the moment will be about existence. It will be about surviving through this. And as he said, not only finding a way of potentially finishing this season, if that can even be done, but of of then plugging the funding gaps, which will inevitably arise next season because of the money that's been advanced by the Premier League and, and the EFL, and of making sure that they can continue to operate in the right way. And it's not to say that when you get up to the level of, of a Legion United, for example, that money issues are not there either. I mean, they were one of the first to agree a wage deferral with the players and it was done very quickly to make sure that it was in before um, the wage bill for March was paid. And that was It was done in this, you know, in the case of around about 48, 72 hours that that was discussed and agreed because they realised that they needed to, to make cuts and they needed to save cash. But if you chat to anybody at Leeds United, if you get behind the front door and, and ask them what the real concern there is, the real concern is finishing the season and making sure that they go up, making sure that they're promoted. You know, they they are looking at this in a competitive sense more than more than a monetary sense. They have to protect themselves financially. But promotion is the issue here. And and I get the feeling that when you go further down the leagues and certainly into leagues one or two, perhaps promotion isn't such a such a big deal or such a concern because as much as in a competitive sense you want to achieve that, in a financial sense and in, in the way that it would actually help a club's basic health. 
jumping from League One to uh, from League Two to League One or, or League One to the Championship won't make that huge difference in the way that promotion to the Premier League would. So it has to be said that in pulling this piece together, it was incredibly difficult to get a, a coherent thread through the middle of it because it does feel like you have 71 EFL clubs with 70, 71 different priorities and different concerns. But, but, but you say that about the League One to Championship promotion... That that would depend, Phil, wouldn't it, on who goes up? Because if Sunderland and Portsmouth were to go up, or Ipswich, which admittedly looks slightly, or before the season stopped, looked slightly uh, remote that Ipswich would go up given the, the run of form that they were on. But if Sunderland and Portsmouth go from League One to the Championship, then they would be on television a lot compared to a, a smaller club such as a Wickham or a Peterborough or even a Rotherham. So th- there is a there is probably actually a big difference financially for those bigger League One clubs if they were to go up. And that's that's where another dilemma would come into it. There is a definite difference, but I don't think the difference in cash would alter losses or um, financial shortfalls in, in the way that it would um, promotion from the Championship to the Premier League. I mean, Leeds published the, the most recent accounts for the, the 2018-19 season um, a week ago, and the losses in there were £21 million, pounds, and, and that was helped by £15 million pounds coming in from transfers. The, the operating loss was £36 million, and, and it's been soaked up almost entirely by Andrea Radrizani, the, the club's majority shareholder. And it's a huge shortfall and a, and a massive deficit which can only really be, be dealt with and can only be wiped out by, by getting into the Premier League and I think the fear at, at that level is that if if promotion if you've kind of mortgaged a lot on promotion if you've thrown a lot of money at promotion and you've got it at your fingertips and it doesn't happen how many times can you you go again um, whereas I think when you get down into League One certainly for Sunderland in particular it, it is not ideal in any sense for them to be at that level and it, it won't be good for them long term if, if they stick around there but you would assume that there is a model there which would mean that when next season starts up they could have a good crack at League One um, once again and, and, and get themselves out of it and potentially Portsmouth too. I think the the, the ridiculous disparity between the Premier League and the Championship and, and it is there to an extent between the Championship and League One but not to the same degree. I think that, that really heavy disparity is why for, for a club like Leeds, for clubs a club like West Brom, for those that are in the playoffs, finishing this season, it feels like a very urgent necessity and I certainly get the sense that there is more urgency to finish the season in the Championship than there is further down the pyramid. Okay, let's. Uh, I, I want to wrap up dealing in this current situation, and then we'll move on to looking sort of media term and and long term. But Matt, at the moment, if playing behind closed doors, as as Simon talked about, with Andy Holt, cl- clubs would lose a lot of money there because of the costs that go into just putting a game on without anybody coming through the door. And also, you know, there was a Sports Illustrated article this week on the logistical difficulties of even holding a game behind closed doors and this was in the American market and how many people would need tested and so on and so forth. There are other reports going, you, you might not even get crowds into sporting events this calendar year. You might be looking at 2021. So even starting a new, if even if you ended this season for League One and League Two and then started next season behind closed doors, that, that doesn't solve the problem for, for these clubs and their cash flow. No, I completely agree with you. I mean, th- this is where so much of the conversation at the moment is um, just just it's taking place in a very, very deep fog because 
everyone's talking about, you know, how do we finish this season? And people are starting now, I think, to sort of talk about, okay, impact on next season. You know, how much do we want to compromise next season? Look, we, we have no idea what is going to be going on. We have no idea if it's going to be safe. We've got no idea about some of the things you've just addressed there, how you actually stage games behind closed doors, the numbers involved, um, how you keep people safe. What do you do if there's an outbreak, you know, potential impacts on public health service uh, systems? These are the same conversations, as you say, that are taking place in the in, in states with Major League Baseball and the NFL and yeah, how you finish the NBA playoffs and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, everyone is everyone is reaching for for some sort of answer here. And I, and I think to go back to Phil's answer about the difference, I think, between the championship situation and League One and League Two. I mean, I, I think Phil was, was was absolutely spot on there. And it's 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 about legal risk. I mean, one of the things that is driving the Premier League conversation, and I think also dragging the championship conversation along with it, is this is this knowledge that it looks like it's going to be closed doors, but we still have TV income. The TV income's being paid. We have to fulfil that contract. The only way that that we'll have to pay that money back is if. You know, we don't play any more games and we, you know, we, we burn relationships with our key broadcast partners. We will actually have to give money back. And that is problems for everyone, everyone apart from maybe Man City. You know, we're talking, you know, it's, it's that sort of, you know, that size of that size of issue. Never mind next season. That'll be a problem this season. Now, that's the first thing. That's the first legal problem. Can we satisfy those contracts? Broadcasters being the main one, sponsors being sort of a secondary one. I think the other one is is about finishing the season is the potential legal challenges from people that don't make Europe, people that don't get promoted, people that get relegated and feel they still could have got themselves out of it. It's those issues. It's those issues that could take you all the way to the core of arbitration for sport, that could tie you up in civil courts for years to come. Now, I'm not really seeing those issues in League One and League Two. With the best will in the world, I cannot see Fleetwood going to the core of arbitration for sport. I can't see Wickham possibly Sunderland. But the point is, if you are deprived of a place in the Premier League, where you know that if you spend two seasons in the Premier League, it's about a £300 million guaranteed check in terms of parachute payments as well. Spending a couple million on a on the best lawyers you can, well, that's, that's sensible. But are uh, Wickham... Oxford United, those sort of clubs, crew in League Two, are they are they gonna be doing that? I, I just I just can't see it. And if and if they do, would you know what? I think I think we'll see you in court in terms of the greater good. So the, the, I just don't see that legal risk. Does does the do you think the mood of the of the country would ha- play any effect on that? I mean, Phil, before before we started recording this, we talked about the situation in Scotland and we we off air talked about Partick deciding not to take legal action after after the plan that has been implemented in Scotland has relegated Partick from the Championship to League One, and and I wonder as this lockdown stays in place and could be increased, and as I'm talking to you now, you know another 860 deaths have been announced in in the UK. We record on a on a Thursday afternoon. I wonder whether the the mood of the nation would affect a club taking legal action or are the sums so incredible that actually the mood of the nation would be ignored? I think enough clubs are 
uh, insular and have enough self-interest to pursue that route. But what I think was interesting about the the statement from Patrick Thistle, uh, and this touches on what Matt was saying about Leagues 1 and League 2, was that, that they essentially said... it. This whole argument is about sustainability and about survival and, and about the health of the club. And it does not help us going forward to get into legal battles and to, to put up legal costs that could be spent on retaining staff and paying staff and making sure that the, the existing staff base is, is maintained. And I found that fascinating because it's gone this beyond the point of, or, or certainly for Patrick Thistle, beyond the point of sporting integrity or, or league position they've taken a look at it and and you know and going at the by the statement at face value and said it doesn't make sense financially for us to take the risks that would be involved in legal action and i think again that's where you have massive disparity in the sport you have clubs who could afford quite easily to lean on lawyers in in big complicated arbitration cases you have clubs that simply could not at all and and again going back to, to Andy Holt at Accrington you know he he used a really good phrase I think which was that people are basically asking it when it when it comes to the discussion about games behind closed doors people are asking clubs at that level or owners at that level to effectively burn their clubs by paying money to make sure that this season finishes so that it is seen to finish without any regard for the fact that it is going to cost them a fortune in, in relative terms and again it comes back to this thing of, of so many clubs being in different positions financially and, and different positions of strength when it comes to, to flexing their muscles over getting the outcome that, that they want and I think that's why at the moment you know, Matt used a very good phrase, which is, you know, whole thing covered in fog. That's how it feels. It, it does feel England, Scotland, most other countries, nobody's quite sure how this is going to boil down. And even those who are certain about what they want are, are far from certain about knowing how they're going to get to that outcome. Would, would you treat League One and Two, Simon, differently to the Championship in, in all of this? Uh, one of the comments, actually, on the article from, from Jivan said his first line, most League One and League Two clubs should be morally allowed to furlough their staff as as they make modest incomes, i.e. take advantage of, of the government scheme, that, that that would be moral for what, in essence, the majority of those League One, League Two clubs are small community businesses. Yeah, I think certainly, I mean, I, speaking to people over the course of the last two weeks, I think there's certainly been a growing realisation and a growing acceptance that the League One and League Two, there's a chance that it, it might not be able to finish because of all the reasons that we just sort of explored there. I mean, the one thing that this has really exposed is that you know, there's a perception that, that, that football is awash with money, which it is, but the, all that, a lot of that money is allocated. You know, unless your club is run by a state, obviously there is a couple of Premier League, or at least one Premier League club that's financed by a state rather than a person or a group of people all of those clubs are run with a real uh, economic reality. You know, that the, these clubs don't have spare change knocking about for a rainy day. You know, all of the money is allocated. So, you know, it was put to me last week by, you know, people involved at Liverpool, one of the reasons why that they decided to furlough, that it was, you know, that, that they were, they were they thought it was unfair that, that, that given that their club is run on real financial terms, and that this will have a hit on not only Liverpool Football Club but the city of Liverpool, you know, economically. That we have because we're a Premier League football club and are operating on a different scale to other clubs, a different scale of money. That they're not able to, to do what pretty much every other business in the 
in the country is is able to do. Some businesses which are turning over even bigger revenues than Liverpool. I mean, my argument to that was that you know Liverpool sort of benefit financially from this idea. You know that this means more. You know you'll never walk alone. All these slogans, and then at the first sign of financial trouble, you know try and take advantage of a scheme which is really designed to sort of help smaller businesses. But I could sort of understand elements of their argument. Now, this goes back to, I guess, you mentioned the, the championship and the and League One. And earlier this year, I think it was in January, obviously, I, I wasn't writing with coronavirus in mind at the time. But, you know, the, the figures there are quite startling in terms of, you know, the, the gap between the championship and League One in terms of the amount of spending that goes on and the pressure that that puts on clubs. So... The average signing in the championship is 45 times more than League One compared to a decade ago when a player's value was, was just 10 times as much. So that shows you, you know, the acceleration of spending between the leagues and that shows you the appetite of clubs, I guess, you know, in the championship to go and, and get into the Premier League and how expensive that, that race is. So, you know, there's obviously, I think there's something like uh, 14 billionaire owners in the championship now. I think there's there's one or one, uh, there's, yeah, there's just one in, in League One, which is obviously the, the Portsmouth owner. There are obviously other wealthy owners, but not, not on the same scale. So I think we've got to treat it differently. And I think there's a growing realisation that unless your club is sort of really invested in the idea of promotion, that... There seems to me, I mean, I can't speak for everybody because I haven't spoken to every chairman and every person, every director at each football club because there's a vast different swathe of opinions. But it seems to me there's a growing sort of acceptance that that there will have to be a difference in regulation between certainly the Championship and League One. And, and, And there might be a situation where the Championship does have to finish, but League One and below doesn't. So... Let, let's wide it out there. Wide it out away from from the current situation we're in with 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 COVID nineteen. But but it borrows from a point that has come up several times in that discussion about the championship being one entity and League One and League Two being the other. Is is the majority of the EFL structure and attention, Matt, based on the championship? and clubs wanting the ability and power to gamble to get into the Premier League? It's a huge factor, for sure. I mean, just I think maybe we we should probably remind listeners of just some of the kind of economic realities, really. So the first thing perhaps to point out is this all flows from the formation of the Premier League. I'm sorry, it all goes back to 1992 and, and what the big clubs were trying to do there. You know, you I, I could talk for hours about this, just about how how pretty much everything changed. I mean, it didn't all change at once. And some of the stuff was changing already to do with TV technology, to do with, you know, the stadium improvements after Heysel and Bradford and Hillsborough and and, and sort of you know, the influx of foreign players. A lot of these things were, were, were in train, but it, it, was that, it was that moment where the big clubs, the biggest clubs in, our, in, our, in the land, decided they didn't want to share as much with the 92. They didn't want to take 50% for the top flight and send 25 to the second tier and 25% to, to share between, you know, tiers three and four, which had been a, a move already. That, had, that, had, that it used to be even more egalitarian than that. We used to, we used to share, um, we used to share match receipts. We used to share match day revenues. So there had been this move 
towards the bigger clubs keeping a bigger share. So if you just remember that as a starting point, that from that moment, instead of more money cascading down the down down the pyramid, we've got to the position where we're at now, where the top flight takes basically about 90% of the money generated by, by English football and kicks some of it back, some of it back in, in, in solidarity payments, um, which is all part of the settlement, all part of the settlement made with the Football League and the FA, and some of it goes in parachute payments, which I think we will have to address in a different answer because that is a huge, huge part of the problem for me. But 1992 changed the distribution, the allocation of the big football pot that English football is worth and makes. It just changed it forever. And we've been, it's taken almost 30 years, but but we're, we, we've got to this point because of that, for me. So remember that. And then within the EFL, 80% of the EFL central income goes to the championship and 12% goes to League One and 8% goes to League Two. So you can already, just from 80, 12, 8, see the issue that Simon's just been talking about. The League One championship cliff edge. It's huge. It's not quite as well. It's, actually, you know what? It probably is as bad as the Premier League because the Premier League one is 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 constantly eased and confused by parachute payments and people massively gambling. Billionaire sugar daddies massively gambling, filling filling that gap. You don't see so much of that between the Championship and League One. So, 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 so those are the issues. Now, now, what do we do about that? Well, we're not. Unfortunately, as much as I'd like it not to be the case, we're, we're not going to row back to 1991. That, that, that ship sailed. And in fact, not only is that ship sailed, it's, it's, it's gone around a corner and it's now, it's now thinking about how we're going to, how the big six are going to keep more of the money from the, from the 14 in the Premier League. And, and that row has started and it will, come, it will keep coming round until we have another 1992 type situation. God knows what that will look like, but that, 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 that it's coming. What, what do we do with what's left? I think I think the EFL, I mean, I'm going to race ahead. I'm going to race ahead to one of my solutions. Go on. We have to go regional. I'm sorry, League, league One and League Two should be regionalised. They should become, you know, kind of equal equal leagues, a third tier, third division north, third division south. And I think we, I think the EFL needs to share its money more, 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 e- more evenly. I, I don't like eighty twelve eight. I just don't. The other thing on eighty twelve eight is if you actually feel, and I'll come on to regionality very shortly. But if you look at the the structure of the EFL board, there are six club representatives on the EFL board: three from the Championship, two from League One, and one from League Two. So immediately, even if you look at the EFL's own board, Phil, that screams inequality between the three divisions. Of course, and, and it leads towards the, the most powerful brokers um, in the EFL, but I still think that the, the whole discussion has to be topped by the the amount of money that is in, in the Premier League versus the amount that there is in, in the EFL, and even when you're, you're talking about the, the 80 12, um, 8 percentage splits. But then you look at, at the actual figures concerned. Um, again, I, I apologise for going on about Leeds, but they're obviously the club that, that I know most about. They, turnover's not a problem at Ellen Road. They, they turn over um, in the region of £50 million. Um, they expect to do £60 million in, in this financial year. And, and what always in, sort of amuses me about the accounts, so that it's not particularly funny, is that when you look at the broadcast revenue, 
In amongst that fifty million pounds of turnover is one point five million of TV money. I, I mean, it, it is almost fractional um, in comparison to cash that's being pulled in by um, gate receipts and, and merchandising and so on. And, and clearly, the, the central um, distribution revenue does make a big difference as well. You're usually talking in the region of six or seven million pounds, but it's minuscule when you compare to compare the, the money that, that's getting paid to clubs who are in the Premier League for a season, two seasons. I mean, I had a look at, at West Brom. TV cash in the season before they came down because obviously they were direct rivals to Leeds um, last season and, and again this season and their TV money alone was three times the, the annual turnover um, at Ellen Road and, and that I think is the bigger bigger disparity and until you start to, to water that down and until the four divisions start to act in tandem and to realise that you cannot have a scenario where the Championship is chasing the Premier League, but it's chasing it on on tiny amounts of cash in comparison to what is in that division when you get to it. I don't see anything changing. And I think that is the only thing that is going to bring some semblance of normality and, and stability back to the whole structure. So how, how do you bridge that gap then, Simon? Are you looking at, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Matt's mentioned parachute payments, which I'm sure we'll discuss. Do you, do you make greater distribution of the TV money from the Premier League, which they're never going to agree to? Do you look at a Premier League 2, which would surely then just sort of push push the problem elsewhere and increase the gap between the haves and, and the have-nots? What what do you do? Well, it's difficult to find a solution when, uh, I guess, as Matt said earlier, you know, sort of we can't see beyond the mist at the moment. And one of the things that, I've been thinking about is is it's not just in in the football league where there's these sort of disparities. It trickles down all the way through into non-league. I sort of touched on it a little bit earlier that you know the national league now there's a lot of wealth in the national league and a lot of professional football clubs, a lot of clubs who are you know spending money that they don't have to try and reach the promised land. So. You know, there was a, a little note on the on the document that was sent over before about how you know to, to reduce the number of clubs. I think I think a sensible solution regionalisation would be a sensible solution for a number of reasons. You know, cuts down on travel costs, increases the number of derbies, increases potentially the footfall through the gates. You know, I would be in agreement with that. I mean, that, I guess that's a, a hark back to a, a different age when there was. Um, Regionalisation uh, in in the old Division Four, I think I'm right in saying. So um, that that's a potential option. I mean, I, I do think that clubs, rather than reducing the amount of professional clubs, I mean, I think there's a danger of that because at this moment in time, we don't know how many um, you know how many clubs are going to be able to survive this. You know, Mark Palios said uh, yesterday. Obviously, he's the, the owner of Tranmere that he feels that, that there's going to be at least a dozen clubs who who will go out of business because of this. Uh, you know, he. Is very much, you know, a very smart businessman who 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 knows how he, how how, he, how to run his football club, and I would trust his opinion on that. Just just going back to the, the national league, I I think that there needs to be sort of some realignment there, whereby you know non-league can benefit as well from from some sort of reform, because at the moment, you know, there's a massive gap in wealth between the uh, the, the national league clubs and then. The, the regionalised National League in, in the north and the south beneath that, where there's there's even some professional clubs at that level as well now. So there's a lot of clubs who are spending lots of money to try and reach the Football League, but they're not in the Football League. But equally, you don't want to just reward the teams that have the most money by giving them places higher up the structure. 
just because they're able to afford it. You know, there has to be some sporting integrity. But I, I really do think that there needs to be, a, a, you know, some extra thought about how this all maps out. Maybe you look in countries like Spain. I mean, Spain has a much, um, you know, there's much bigger distances to travel between leagues. But beneath beneath the second division, the, the leagues are regionalised, you know, into, into different sections. I think that would be possibly a, a solution to this, you know, whereby you increase the number of teams from the from the National League to make it possible to, to, to have um, to have more regionalised leagues, which will cut down on costs and, as I say, increase gate receipts potentially. The danger with that, of course, is that there's too much familiarity season on season that you're facing the same teams. And I do actually think supporters, even though, you know, there's a decreasing number of supporters, I'd be interested to see how many how many away supporters go to the to these games, you know, when they're travelling long distances. I think that would need to be analysed, you know, because, you know, I think one of the beauty of football, certainly when I was, you know, a young person looking to, you know, sort of to follow uh, football, you know, going on these long distances were part of the allure, really. But, you know, there, there is a real financial, you know, reality to this, as I said before, that, that has to be considered. So, there are, I think at the moment, I don't think anybody can afford to, to rule anything out. And, and actually think outside, you know, people, clubs are going to have to think outside accepted norms of the way things have been done for for, for decades. You know, that there is going to have to be major reform after this. I, I just don't see anything other than that. But yeah, and everybody around the table is, is the biggest challenge because as we've just discussed, you know, there's too many different authorities, too many different bodies. Remember, only a couple of months ago, sort of Jürgen Klopp mentioned this, you know, at the top end of football, that there's just too many conflicting interests. And I think this is mapping out now across football. Can I just throw a question in there, Simon? Am I right in saying that in the National League and, and um, you know, the, the top division, obviously, North and South, that there are no financial fair play restrictions or certainly nothing in the same guise as, as the EFL has, for example? I think, I think that you're right about that, Phil. I think, um, you know, over the last sort of 10, 15 years, 20 years really I guess since around the time when Accrington got into the to the Football League I think that was 2006-7 period I think um, you know there's been enormous change non-league and it, it just doesn't get enough reported really I guess because you know local papers of the, the, you know the, over the last sort of 10-15 years have, have fallen away don't, so don't necessarily report the local club's interests and the challenges that they face and I think the non-league football tends to get reported through the FA Cup really and there's still this almost romanticised version of the way it is there when the reality is I mean there's no financial fair play but you know the most responsible owners do try to live within their means you know I'll use Files as an example you know when Files played Sheffield United it was sort of you know the, the reporter Gerard I don't want to be too critical of other people's reporting but it went down the route of you know little old Files when They've had a huge amount of investments put into that yes. football club to to make it a competitive football club in in the national league. You know they've got ambitions of being in the football league. You know despite its 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 lack of history and uh, where it's come from. So this really needs to be considered, and it's not considered enough. I think I think it's just it it, it needs to be on the agenda about how non-league football has changed and and. Even the way you know the the, the, league, the the teams are structured now, you know, I remember when I first started covering non-league football. Non-league football was almost seen as as a place to aim for for a lot of players. Players wanted to uh, 
took a lot of pride in working their way up from amateur level, say in Liverpool or, or Manchester, and going to play for their local teams. Now non-league football is populated by academy dropouts, basically, who are clinging on to the vain idea that they might make it back into the Football League. And their expectations of finance increase with that as well. So there's, you know, non-league is often sort of advertised as being the alternative when it's just an extension of the reality that a lot of football clubs face in the Football League. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly bringing... Um... The, the current situation with COVID-19 back into this, actually, Matt. But if you look at, you know, if, if there was a way of actually stopping, if you stopped League 1 and 2 now and said, right, you know, no promotion, no relegation, whatever it is, and our new structure will actually involve two regionalised divisions. So you're not really going up or down any of you, but we will. this should help you financially going forward. And we'll look at restructuring National League, National League North and South as well. You might start, and I'm sure people within the industry, within football clubs would tell me different, but you might start to find a way out of this. You might do. And, and, and all I ask, really, of, of any of the decision makers is that they're at least using this opportunity, this hiatus, to, to properly address some of the issues that I don't think have been properly dealt with since last summer. When let's not forget we lost Barry, we very, very, very nearly lost Bolton. We know there is a even coming into COVID nineteen, uh, we had half a dozen clubs pretty much on life support, going trading insolvently, going from going from match home match receipt to to to, to the home match. So just use this time to get a blank piece of paper out and just work out how you can do this better, how you can be better prepared, more robust for the next crisis. It could be it could be a broadcast partner failing. It could be a terrorism attack. It could be who knows, something awful. I, I, I don't know. That's that's the whole point. We're not supposed to know. But let's be let's be more ready for it this time next time. Let's not always have to rely on wealthy people to bail us out. Let's 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 re-engage with the community. Let's let's be more sustainable, something that we can all be proud of. So so that that's really all I ask. I, I I don't you know have massively strong feeling. I don't think it has to be regional. I just think it's a good idea. It's one that keeps coming back to me. But, you know, but also, but I, I'm I'm just starting to. I mean, I, I've wondered about regional for a while, but but now it's in there, and you you start talking about it, and that because of various other problems that we talked about, TV deals, this, that, and the other. If you if you regionalise it, Phil, and I don't know, have make. Obviously, you still have the majority of the games on, on, on Sky or whatever because that's where big money comes. But you could also do other deals with other partners. And I don't know. If you had in the, in the north Rotherham against Doncaster, which, quite frankly, you know, nobody no, nobody in East Anglia is going to care about, but would be huge for the Yorkshire region and ITV, you could probably do separate deals there if you i mean if you just think a bit differently about how things might work potentially yes i mean i remember a few a few years back um a, a club director telling me that there was a, a kind of unwritten agreement or certainly unpublicized agreement at championship level that clubs were happy to take long away trips um in the, you know certainly clubs that didn't have big away followings to say for example you're in sheffield or in, in yorkshire or, or further north 
happy to take long away trips to Swansea, to Cardiff, to the South Coast, regardless of the inconvenience um, for your supporters. Because on those days, gate receipts were likely to offer those games. Gate receipts were likely to be down anyway. And it meant that, that at the weekends, you were able to maximise the, the profit from, say, Leeds Huddersfield or the Sheffield Derby or, or whatever else. And and I think you're right. You know, it, the, there is the, the added bonus with regional leagues of being able to create I think higher profile fixtures that that would attract bigger crowds, and like you say, that the sponsorship op- um, opportunities and revenue opportunities that come with that are are very obvious. Um, but I still think it's going to have to go an, an off in terms of the financial changes. They're going to have to go an awful lot further than that. And I think the the, the thing that's really stuck with me th- during this this COVID nineteen shutdown is the realization, and it's not a surprise because you knew it was like this, but realization of how many clubs either spend absolutely everything they have or spend more than they have. And and how few clubs have anything in the way of a nest egg or a safety net to cover them for a period where either they're in, the, the, you know, something out of the ordinary happens that affects their income. And I can't help feeling that, that it would be sensible for the EFL and actually also the, the Premier League, because you've seen clubs at that level following staff as well, to, to try and implement some strategy whereby clubs do actually try to look after some of the money and to put some of the money aside. And I know it sounds naive to say that because that's that's just not how it works. But if you think of profit and sustainability in the championship, the model is essentially that over three years, you're allowed to lose a maximum of £39 million. So as a sort of point of principle, everybody in the championship is saying, look, you're bound to lose money and everybody will look to lose money because of the amount that they want to spend. So this is the, the maximum deficit that, that you're allowed to have rather than saying in terms of financial fair play or in terms of profit and sustainability, which is a kind of contradiction in terms in itself. Rather than saying to clubs, why not try and break even or, or make a profit? What you're saying to them is, please don't lose any more than £39 million in, in three over a three-year cycle. And it has surely got to the point now where everybody is going to have to, to take a step back and say, look, if we do nothing about this and if the structure remains the same, the next time there's an, an issue like this, and, and let's not pretend it couldn't be COVID-19 again in six months' time or 12 months' time if, if there was another big outbreak, it's not going to be any different. You're going to have the same problems, you're going to have the same issues, and we'll all be stuck in exactly the same hole. And you would like to think that there will be major, major change on the back of this, but I have to say I, I don't have any expectation of that. Just to jump in on, on Phil's point, um, Mark, I mean, what, what sort of disappoints me is the EFL... <laughs> brought in some pretty good financial fair play rules, I think in about 2012, 2013. And it it did actually, they were starting to get a grip. They were certainly reducing club debt. And then they relaxed them again. Now, they relaxed them again because of pressure from championship clubs. This this eternal thing that keeps coming around. You are, you are, um, where's the aspiration? We want to dream. You know, you are you're 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 manacling us, and it's not right. We've got some money to spend. Why why can't we aspire to be in the Premier League? And then you get this situation where you get you you then legitimise thirty million nine million pounds worth of losses every year, and it's actually more because don't forget they can write off a lot of losses on the youth team, the women's team, infrastructure. A lot of these clubs are losing 50, 60 million. The Championship clubs lost, uh, I think it was sort of three hundred and fifty million quid uh, in 2017, 2018. I think only two of them turn a profit. The clubs that turn profits in the championship, do you know where they go? They get relegated. They're Rotherham, they're Barnsley, they're, they're, they're Burton. And then, you know, you start bringing in parachute payments, which completely queer the pitch for everybody else, including Leeds United. Leeds United are a well-run club. 
They're about as well run as you can be, but they are, they, they're having a two or three year go, and this is year two or three of that, depending on where you want to start it. Certainly the Bielsa era, I'd say. I, I'd be very surprised if they could go again at this level without having to sell players and massively uh, retrench on the wage bill. But they would you have ditch to. parachute payments then, Mark? I would, I would. And they've, they've, I've been talking about this so for what, about 15 years. So what, if you get relegated years. tough? Cut, too bad. Cloth too, 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 too bad. And let's, let's be honest about what parachute payments are for. Parachute payments are to make the Premier League product even better. They are to, they are to encourage you to come up and have a go. They are to encourage smaller teams who would probably struggle otherwise to sign players on two or three year deals because everyone would look at them and go, I'm not so sure you're going straight back down again. But if you give them a parachute payment, they will, they will overpay. They'll give a longer contract than they really should do. They won't have as such uh, stringent clawback clauses and relegation clauses. So they make the Premier League product better. That whole idea that the Premier League is competitive from top to bottom, that kind of any given Sunday, you know, mantra, which isn't really true anyway, because we know that the big six, you know, tend to do well. And we actually have, we were actually getting fewer champions, different champions now than we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. But it's important. The PR is important. It's, it's, it's close. It's a more competitive league from top to bottom than, than La Liga or Ligue 1 or Serie A. But it's, but it's not, it's not the NFL, is it? Let's be honest. So the parachute payment is a part of that. And the parachute payment is there is to make the Premier League product better. It completely wrecks the championship wrecks the championship in my opinion so do, do away with them do just do away with them the, the funny thing is it, it doesn't wreck the championship in a competitive sense because you, you do get teams who come down and, and you've seen it this season with um with west brom and fulham are, are obviously making the most of parachute payments but you, you also see plenty of clubs over the years who make nothing of them but what it does do is it it essentially just creates a pool of cash which is completely burned on inflated wages that have come down from the Premier League and it creates huge disparity in wage models between clubs which means that when one club without parachute payments tries to get into an arm wrestle with a club who do have parachute payments for a particular player you either move to the level that they can afford um, to pay at or you move on and get some somebody else and that's why clubs who don't have the money get dragged up and up to a higher level of wage bill because in order to, to get what are the, the kind of marquee players at championship level you have to pay more and more money for them because they are extremely expensive coming down and and that I think is something that that will change as a result of this not necessarily wage levels but I do think transfer fees and and other things are going to become fairly depressed um, over the next few months in comparison to to where we've been before but I agree with Matt I don't see any value to parachute payments at all apart from helping clubs come down pay off wages that well, they cannot you afford. Put the parachute payment money in the solidarity pot and share it more evenly. Do you- do you think just to throw one other subject in there before we end this? You know, we talk about how to how to make it more even, more fair. We talk about restructuring. Um, there will be people listening going, "Well, you know, the, these are these are you know four journalists harking back to you know the the, the pre Premier League, the good old days, everything equal, not as much money, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Do you think in reality, if a few clubs, Simon, did disappear? Rather than restructuring, there might be noises from some Premier League clubs about the whole B-team idea, which has failed miserably, in my opinion, in the um, EFL trophy thing, whatever it's called now. Leasing.com, keep up. Thanks, Matt. Excellent. Well, Obviously. That's <laughs> <laughs> the most important fact out. So, <laughs> There'd have to be a massive, massive 
change in, in appetite for, for that to be justified, you know, a, a B-team competition. I mean, I mentioned Spain before, didn't I, which is, I think, where the, the, that idea sort of germinated from. I've got to be honest, I don't think it would get enough traction beyond a few elite Premier League clubs, you know, Manchester City, Liverpool, Man, Man, you know, Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea, you know, clubs with big squads wanting to, to test out their players at a lower level. Uh, as you said, that the, the, the attendances of those games, which have been pretty pointless, really. I mean, I, I'm talking about Liverpool and, and Accrington again, I guess, but Accrington played um, a Liverpool team in, let's get it right, the leasing, what was it, the leasing trophy, right, yeah, leasing trophy uh, in, in no, November, uh, October, November time. And it, Liverpool that night actually fielded a weaker team than they fielded against Aston Villa the following month. Uh, and they, they lost 5-2 to Accrington. So they, they certainly, you know, the, the, the team that they fielded had no benefits for, for those players, really. I don't think any of the players who played that night will, will, will ever get close to Liverpool's first team. So, you know, that that, that, that has all, almost been used as a testing ground whereby clubs just haven't really utilised it in a, in, a, in a way that is going to increase their arguments, I guess. So... In the long term, I mean, I don't think that, that that is the solution, if I'm being totally honest. I think that there needs to be a greater amount of trust between clubs. I realise that that's idealistic. Um, a greater amount of communication between clubs. But again, that's idealistic because you know there's so much change between... You, you, the, the relationship between clubs is often based on, on the people and the personnel at those clubs. And there's so much traction and change of football clubs now that... It means that those relationships lose a great deal pretty quickly when managers move on, when youth coaches move on, when academy managers move on. It's such a transient sport. So trying to establish that trust where players can go out and play champions at lower, you know, lower league clubs and have a consistent system which shoots everybody. I think it, again, it, I think it's idealistic. So I mean, I just think that the, the, the will always be enough uh, football clubs to fulfil. Fixtures. It's just whether you know the, the the authorities are going to be willing to promote clubs who haven't earned them. You know, I'll go back to the, the non-league arguments earlier. You know, there's, there'll be clubs in the non-league who'd be itching to take their opportunity in the football league in this new world if they were given the opportunity to so would take it. You know, without without any hesitation at all. I'm absolutely certain of that. It's non impossible to to predict anything at the moment but that doesn't stop the questions being asked so to, to each of you Phil you go first maybe do you think in three years time we'll see a significantly different EFL uh, no I don't to be honest and I think in a year's time or in six months time if COVID-19 has, has packed up and gone and, and we're back into football as as we knew it before that there will definitely be financial problems there will definitely be financial shortfalls but I think the problem with football is that it's that repetitive trend that nobody can get out of which is spend as much as you can spend as much as you think you can afford and, and be as, as ambitious as possible um, and I don't without really strict instruction from any of the governing bodies or the authorities I don't see clubs operating in in a different way it might be that in the meantime they have to spend slightly less because they have slightly less but I think that'll all be relative right across the league and and I do think that most of these clubs 
should be able to survive in one way or another. You'd like to think that if if there are real issues, that they'll be given the help that they need. And but I, again, to go back to what Andy Holt said in in the piece that that we all um, all contributed to. It's likely that the biggest problems are going to come in six months or a year's time because there will be an advance in money at the moment which will help clubs to to survive in the short term. It's going to be when they get round to the point where the funding gaps appear and and the money that would have been paid via solidarity payments or whatever else are no longer there because they've already arrived and, and been spent. But in terms of major significant changes, I'd be very surprised because football is permanently resistant to change. Phil? That was Phil. That was me. <laughs> oh, sorry, it was Phil. Sorry, Simon. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I, I think the. Oh, I didn't like. I didn't like Phil's answer. I want him to do it again. <laughs> do it again. Go again. <laughs> Simon. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there will be some changes. I think you know you you mentioned I think more come at the start of the, the 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 discussion. You know, clubs like that, unless they're able to to moth. I've I've heard the term mothball being used by some. People in football, you know, that, that, that that's what they'd like to do, just essentially close down the club until further notice. That's suited a lot of non-league. I mean, I keep, keep on going about non-league, but uh, that's suited some non-league clubs who've been able to do that because they haven't got players on contracts. I mean, whether that's achievable in, in, in the football league where, you know, a lot of clubs have got commitments to players. I mean, contracts tend to be no more than two years outside the championship. So perhaps there's a possibility for that to happen. But I, I just think that unless unless there's some sort of solution, some long-term relief package, some new money, not just money that's been knocked down the line, there is going to be some impact on on um, on, on the, the weakest elements of, of the Football League, you know, the clubs that are already in trouble. You know, I, I don't know how they're going to survive this, to be honest, without, without some major intervention from people in authority. Um, I see Phil's points, you know, I, th- I think that sort of football, as we know it, sort of uh, in the championship and, and possibly in League One won't change too much. But between League Two and, and, and non-league, I think that's where you're going to see the biggest change. Phil, no, only joking. Matt? <laughs> yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm going um, to, I think Phil's right. And I think, and I think Simon's right. Just, you know, kind of, I know journos are a bit cynical about these things, but I, I it, it look, they should they should be thinking about radical change. They should be thinking about all kinds of things. I suspect that some of them will, but will they get it over the line? Will they be able to to build enough support in this time? I, I just I just can't see it. I, I just think we've had these opportunities before. ITV Digital was a, was a, was an opportunity to to have a look at this again and 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 how you how you do things differently and more fairly and more sustainably. And and look we. We didn't see a great deal of change. I, I I would like them to consider regional. I'd like them to consider salary caps. Uh, absolutely no to B teams. I'm sorry for for you know. I know that um, some of our, our, our Spanish our Spanish friends like to come over here and remind us how how wonderful that is in terms of development. But look, fine works for Spain, works for Italy, works for other other nations as well. It doesn't work here for me. I'm sorry. We the, the beauty of what we have is we have this wonderful pyramid. Let's, let's, let's not always have, we don't have to copy and eight people all the time we we have and as, as Simon's been talking about you know the, the professionalization of non-league football that's fine I've got no problem with that let the market sort that out I mean if people want to put money into their local town to to, to have a little bit of civic pride absolutely fine and you know if you talk about, if you talk about changes that I think we will see I think we, we will lose 
I don't know, half a dozen, 10 teams, whether they will go bankrupt or whether they will just just be so poor off the back of this that they will just fall through the leagues. I don't know. I, I fear it could be, you know, two of the teams I watch most. But there are 10 teams in the National League who can take their place. That's fine. That's football. That's what we have here. Promotion and relegation. We have a pyramid. I don't see bigger structural changes, though. I see I see a reshuffling of the pack. Uh, at the very least, I would like League One and League Two to at least do what they can do. Have a look around. They're not going to get the Premier League suddenly going, do you know what? I'm really sorry. The last 20, the last 28 years, been a disaster. We were wrong. Let's we're gonna we're gonna give you we're gonna double the amount we send down the down the pipe. We're really sorry about that, guys. We we just we just we we thought it was gonna be better this way, but it's just not gonna happen. So just just allocate what you can allocate better, control your costs, and just ah, you know, I just think just be be more sensible. I mean, you know, Phil was talking about you know, can we can we persuade them to have rainy day funds? I think that's hard. And I think I think the other thing, the last thing I'd say is really that this is on a little is on us a little bit. I don't, you know, I don't mean us as journalists. I mean, of course, that we are part of the problem. I mean, us as fans, we always want another left back. We always want that striker in January that's going to push us over the edge. Can we be a bit more mature about it? Can we be a bit more holistic in how we follow our football? And realise that what Accrington is doing is amazing. What Rotherham are doing are amazing. A brilliantly run club. Lincoln, Exeter City, loads of good examples out there. Can we get behind them as opposed to thinking, do you know what? Why can't we? Why can't we buy a Brazilian goalie? Why? Because because they've got one. I want one. You know that that way lies ruin. Fascinating to talk to all three of you. Phil Hay, Simon Hughes, Matt Slater, thank you very much. That article that they all contributed to, you can read on The Athletic and we'll do, and we'll do another uh, Future of Football podcast next week. Thanks for listening.